and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. In the past week, I've read a couple of articles in the New Yorker online that made me think. The first was from their archive and was written by Susan Sontag in 2002. It was titled Looking at War, Photography's View of Devastation and Death seem particularly relevant for the time which we're currently living through and the images that we're all seeing every day from the Ukraine. Anyway, it says this. Photography has kept company with death ever since cameras were invented in 1839. Because an image produced with a camera is literally a trace of something brought before the lens. Photographs had an advantage over any painting as a memento of the vanished past and the dear departed. To seize death in the making was another matter. The camera's reach remained limited as long as it had to be lugged about, set down and steadied. But once the camera was emancipated from the tripod, truly portable and equipped with a rangefinder and a variety of lenses that permitted unprecedented feats of close observation from a distant vantage point, picture-taking acquired an immediacy and authority greater than any verbal account in conveying the horror of mass-produced death. If there was one year when the power of photographs to define, not merely record, the most abominable realities trumped all the complex narratives, surely it was 1945. With the pictures taken in April and early May in Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald and Dachau, in the first days after the camps were liberated, and those taken by Japanese witnesses such as Yasuki Yamahata in the days following the incineration of the populations of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in early August. Photographs have the advantage of uniting two contradictory features. Their credentials of objectivity were inbuilt, yet they always had necessarily a point of view. They were a record of the real, incontrovertible as no verbal account, however impartial, could be, assuming that they showed what they purported to show. Since the machine was doing the recording and they bore witness to the real, since a person had been there to take them. The second article that I read was something completely different and actually something far more relevant, I suppose, to the times in which we live with photography. It was titled, Have iPhone Cameras Become Too Smart? Written by Carl Chaker. It says Apple's newest smartphone models use machine learning to make every image look professionally taken. That doesn't mean the photos are good. That instantly made me think I wanted to read on. So here are some abstract uh, elements that I've taken from that article that I think are particularly relevant to us as photographers who are earning our living through photography or are particularly engaged with the medium. Anyway, Carl says this. For a large portion of the population, smartphone has become synonymous with camera. 
But the truth is that iPhones are no longer cameras in the traditional sense. Instead, they are devices at the vanguard of computational photography. Now, that's a subject that I've spoken about previously over the past few years, and um, without very little interest, actually, I have to say. But anyway, I'll read on. It's a term that describes imagery formed from digital data and processing as much as from optical information. Earlier this month, Apple's iPhone team agreed to provide me information on background about the camera's latest upgrades. A staff member explained that when a user takes a photograph with the newest iPhones, the camera creates as many as nine frames with different levels of exposure. Then, a deep fusion feature, which has existed in some form since 2019, merges the clearest parts of all of those frames together, pixel by pixel, forming a single composite image. This process is an extreme version of high dynamic range, the dreaded HDR, a technique that previously required some software savvy. The iPhone camera also analyzes each image semantically with the help of a graphics processing unit which picks out specific elements of a frame, faces, landscapes, skies, and exposes each one differently. On both the 12 Pro and 13 Pro, I found that the image processing makes clouds and contrails stand out with more clarity than the human eye can perceive, creating skies that resemble the supersaturated horizons of an anime film or a video game. The resulting iPhone images have a destabilizing effect on the status of the camera and the photographer creating a shallow copy of photographic technique that undermines the impact of the original. The average iPhone photo strains toward the appearance of professionalism and mimics artistry without ever getting there. We are all pro photographers now at the tap of a finger, but that doesn't mean our photos are good. There's so much to unpack there. And I have to say, I thought it was extremely well put with a real clarity of information. I think what's interesting to me is this discussion point around all being photographers now and also that expectation of what a photograph should be. And I think that idea of the super saturated colour, that kind of connection between what a photograph is today and an anime film or a video game, video game I should say, really points to a future of where certain aspects of photography are going. This week, I'm pleased to uh, welcome to the podcast to explain to us in roughly five minutes uh, what photography means to them, Trisha Porter. Well, Trisha was born in 1946 in the UK, and her interest in photography began as a teenager when she wanted to bring back a visual record of her first trip outside of Britain to Moscow in an old bus loaded with college students and camping gear. She met the photographer Sylvester Jacobs, who encouraged her to buy a camera, and she began attending lectures and seminars at the just-opened Photographer's Gallery in London, learning from photographers' works such as Stieglitz, Ansel Adams, Cartier-Bresson, Walker Evans and Cortez, and Bill Brandt, many more. 
Her first photography exhibition was in Liverpool in 1972. The outcome of her documenting her surroundings while living in Liverpool's inner city. In 1974, she moved to Liverpool 8, an area of the city that was notorious for its poverty, planning blight and vandalism. The resulting Bedford Street exhibition was shown at the Liverpool Academy of Arts and later the Half Moon Gallery in London. It gained Arts Council support and Porter went on to create a follow-up exhibition titled Some Liverpool Kids, which was also shown at the Academy in 1976. She left Liverpool in 1976 to live uh, in and amongst the rural lifestyle and people of Hampshire and has remained living there until today. Throughout her career, Porter has run community-based photography workshops and continued to exhibit her work with the most recent exhibition, Liverpool Photographs, 1972-74, to being staged at the Bluecoat Gallery, Liverpool, in 2015. Café Royal Books, who we mentioned last week on the podcast, have published five books of Porter's work, Portraits of People in a Dying Community, Liverpool 1972, Some Kids in Liverpool 8, 1974, Industry Year 1986, Liverpool Docks 1975, and Selborne 1980 to 1982. We live behind my parents' pharmacy shop. In those days, you bought your film at the pharmacy and took the exposed film back to the pharmacy and we took them to the local photography lab to be processed. This is my introduction to the photograph. When I was 19, I went on a trip to Moscow and back. I was very naive and didn't know much about what was going on in the world, but I did know that I wanted to document the trip to be able to show my family and friends something of what we experienced. I had sat through slideshows of holiday photos and got very bored. I still have a set of pretty battered slides of that trip, including the Berlin Wall, Red Square in Moscow and all sorts of things in between. All done on Kodak's new and immensely successful, inexpensive Instamatic camera, which came on the market two years before in 1963. In the tradition of my parents, I began studying pharmacy, but it wasn't for me. And at the same time, I was wondering about how a lot of things to do with being a person was being brushed aside while talking about being a Christian. My parents were keen Christians. One summer, four of us went to a place we'd heard of in Switzerland called Labri, where people could stay and ask questions and debate answers. This short trip to Labrie was starting to give answers to some of my questions. Back in London, I met up with others who had been there, including photographer Sylvester Jacobs and his wife, Janet. Several of us shared a flat and pulled some of our resources. I bought a camera and quit pharmacy school. I may have had a camera, but what was I to do with it? What and why would I take photographs and how? I was beginning to understand that the arts is an essential tool which is used to ask questions, make statements and portray a point of view. The camera could be the tool I could use and I was drawn to the documentary photography. In London, the first ever photographer's gallery opened. We went to lectures on photography at the ICA, read photography magazines and met and talked with other photographers such as Tony Ray Jones and Bill Jay. In the Bible, the psalmist David writes, 
The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Would this be a starting point? It's a tough one. We harbour prejudice, arrogance against others, lust for power, etc. I'm often having to reprimand myself. I met David Porter, who was keen to write about his neighbours in the part of the inner city Liverpool. Much had already been written about the area, which had been severely bombed in the war and was subject to planning blight. And social scientists, journalists and the like were using it and its inhabitants as mere symbols of deprivation and poverty. I joined David to work on the story. Looking at the photographs, I thought they're probably too ordinary. They aren't sensational or quirky. Forty years on, I re-exhibited them in Liverpool to wider claim. Was it nostalgia? I don't think so. The lives of the people were pretty harsh. But they speak of the everyday lives of individuals who have been pretty much despised as products of poverty. I've continued to document things around me. Liverpool's derelict docks before moving south, a small village nearby, poignant images across military exercise ranges, my nearest encounter to a war zone. I've also been involved in enabling people in the community to use the camera. One ten-week taster session turned into a ten-year association where we produced two books while grappling with a new digital area that had dawned. Recently, I ran a local photography workshop where we spent three years photographing our village, its people and village activities. The pictures are now in a book. One villager looked at it and remarked that a picture could say more than words. I'm excited to be using photography as a medium for exploring what my initial premise was. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Thank you, Tricia, for your contribution this week. I think particularly appropriate at this Easter time. But also, I'm sure Bill Jay would have loved to have his name mentioned alongside from a quotation from the Bible. Uh, certainly something I think perhaps he would have been able to have picked up upon. Tony Ray Jones also getting a mention there. Both of those characters feature in uh, my podcast In Search of Bill Jay. So you might want to check that out as well if you're not aware of those references that Trisha made. Really wonderful to hear her reflections on a body of work which, in the time it was created, perhaps didn't seem quite as important to many other people as it did to her. But as time has passed, and as she quite rightly recognises that historical reference, that historical relevance there with the work, becomes so much more important as well. And it's really great to see that Craig at Cafe Raw Books has also started to promote her work. If you're not aware of it, get onto her website as always. Check it out. And uh, I don't think that you will be disappointed. In fact, I'm sure you won't, especially if you're interested in that rich body of British documentary work that was created during the 1970s. Great to see a woman was doing it also. Of course, there were many others. But anyway, check out Trisha Porter. 
I spoke at the beginning of this episode uh, about the smartphone and uh, computational photography. And I have to say, I moved away from the iPhone uh, many years ago now towards Android. And it's been much better, I think. But there you go. Maybe that's a controversial viewpoint. But I'm now coming to the end of my contract. And as many of you know, the, the kind of desire, I suppose, at the end of the contract is to get a new phone. That's what you're encouraged to do, to upgrade and to get a better phone. Well, I have to say that the phone I use is the Google 4. It's really old now, but it does everything I need it to do. But when I was looking around as to whether or not I should upgrade or actually take the much, much cheaper option of keeping my phone going forwards, which in these economically difficult days uh, is a very attractive proposition, all I could see that was being sold to me was the reason for upgrading my phone was for a better camera, that the phone was a better camera, it had more lenses and so forth. And going back to that idea of computational photography, that it was going to do more for me, that it was going to give me professional photographs, whether I was a professional photographer or not. Well, I had to think about this, and I, I think I've come up with a hashtag photo life hack. Don't upgrade your smartphone. Buy a camera. Buy a used compact camera. The online sites, the camera uh, sellers, dealers, they've got lots of really good compact cameras, which once, maybe six, seven, eight years ago, were a thousand pounds, eight hundred pounds, what have you. They're selling now for a couple of hundred pounds. And that's a lot less than upgrading your smartphone. So this is the little bit of advice for this week. Don't renew your contract. Don't buy into the idea of getting a better smartphone camera. Just get a better camera. Now, I'm not quite sure exactly how noisy this podcast has been, but I can tell you that I've been recording it in one hell of a windstorm and the old shed has been creaking and blowing around. Now, you maybe have been able to hear that in the background. I don't know. But have no fear. It's not blown us away yet. What I do know is that I'm starting to work on new projects as we're moving into kind of late spring and the summer. And that always feels good. Thinking about new photographic projects, thinking about a new book, a written book. I know I said I'd never do it again, but there you go. I'm getting dragged into it once more. I'm also kind of addressing the ideas of postgraduate education for photographers who don't want to get involved in postgraduate education on the basis of theory or on technique, but dealing with it in a different and a new way. And that's something I'm going to be talking about, uh, I think, probably over future episodes of this podcast, because I think it's a, a very interesting ongoing discussion for a lot of our listeners, for a lot of you, perhaps, thinking of either reconsidering how you're working, realigning how you're working, evolving or developing it within the idea of career focus. So that's something that I'll be thinking about over the next few weeks and something I may well be sharing with you to get your thoughts and input. As always, uh, an eclectic episode this week. I think that's what we like and that's how we like to keep it. But as we move past Easter, the most important thing is always to take care. Mm-hmm.